0: All right, why do you turn to the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. The message entitled, Malachi, God's Final Cry to Israel. Malachi is the twelfth and final minor prophet, and the third post-captivity prophet, the other two being Haggai and Zechariah that we finished. Now, he has been said to be the seal of all the godly fellowship of the prophets. Malachi is the final cry to Israel to repent in view of her sinful lifestyle and the Lord's coming. In view of sinful lifestyle, the Lord's coming. That's always the message, okay? He's talking to the people of God, not to non-believers. It is the book that records the indifference, the compromise, the plain rebelliousness of God's people along with the recording of, of their very sarcastic and irreverent words towards God. As we go through them, you as a parent would not allow your child to talk to you this way. Okay? We'll look at that. It is a picture of man's evil heart and a prophetic preview of humanity before the coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom and to judge the world. Malachi closes the Old Testament canon and the um, next time... God speaks to man is 400 years later. As Matthew opens the New Testament canon with John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He will give us chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, where that is found. His quotation by John the Baptist. Now, let's look at the book of Malachi that reveals the evil of his day by a threefold division that will help us to get a broad view of the book so we can better understand it. Here's your three hooks. The man Malachi. Secondly, the ministry of Malachi. And thirdly, the message of Malachi. We begin with the man Malachi. The name Malachi means my messenger. The name Malachi is believed by some that it might be a title rather than his name, but for the most part is accepted as his name like any other one, and most likely it is. Um, The custom of giving names was often associated with um, some significance from birth. If uh, you reflect back on the scriptures, the name could depict character. As Jacob, and later he would be called Israel. Jacob, flimflam man, conniver, heel catcher, con artist. Israel, governed by God. The name could depict physical characteristics, such as Esau, which means hairy, and Edom, which means red. So they were affiliated with those two things. Now, the family line of Malachi, as we look at his book, it's not known. Malachi does not provide for us any family lineage, as other prophets do in their introduction, such as minor prophets and some of the minor, uh, major prophets. Malachi is not mentioned anywhere else that we know of in the Bible. Therefore, we have absolutely no information about him outside of this book. Certainly no prophet prior to him would refer to him for the simple fact that they were before him and he was after them. <laughs> All right? So they wouldn't be able to do that. and But when Malachi finishes speaking for God, no person would receive any revelation from God to be his prophet until the New Testament. Malachi is quoted, though, in the Gospels, yet not by name, but the quotes certainly are from his book, and it's very, very evident. Malachi is believed to have prophesied in relationship to Nehemiah, to give you a historical perspective of that. Um, There are those who believe that he prophesied when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem around 458-57 BC, and then he returned. But there's no internal evidence of that or mention in the book of Nehemiah. And certainly, as important as uh, Malachi is, even as Haggai and Zechariah, when Nehemiah returned, he certainly would have mentioned them Now, it certainly is possible and probable, but we cannot teach from the absence of Scripture, okay? Because suggestions and opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone has one, okay? It doesn't matter, all right? They're not facts. Um, Then there are those who think that Malachi prophesied at the end of Nehemiah, but once again, there's no evidence within the book of Nehemiah or anything like that. The most logical conclusion with the absence of any internal evidence is to just take him chronologically that he prophesied somewhere after Nehemiah. Probably between 420 to 397 BC. Okay, Some put it 430, but in there it's after Nehemiah. Now... The proclamation of Malachi is the final voice that closes the Old Testament canon prior to the 400 years of silence, according to God's schedule. This is important. We have studied all the major, minor prophets. We've gone through the law, the history, Genesis, the Pentateuch. You see it all. It's all there. We're looking back on everything now. Remember the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel. Um, the 70 weeks of Daniel is divided into 7 weeks, 62 and 1. That adds to 70 weeks. You find that in Daniel 9, 24 down to 26. Now, the first division of 7, remember, is a multiple of sevens. all these numbers. So 7 times 7 is 49 years. The second of 62 multiplied by 7 is four hundred and 34 years, as we studied before, and the third one, one, one times seven is seven. The total of those years, as we saw, was 490 years. The exact number of years, Israel did not let the land rest on its Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they would to let the land rest and trust God to provide for them. So this way, the land could replenish and refurbish and get vitalized. And But they got greedy and disobedient. And in fact, Chronicles ties those together in Second Chronicles thirty six twenty one. It says, "To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept sabbaths to fulfill seventy years. Seven the years, seven sabbaths, seven times seven, four hundred and ninety. So Jeremiah records it. Chronicles records it. He ties it together. So everything's according to God's schedule." Very clear. Now, the prophecy of Daniel does three things for us at this point. First, the first division, 49 weeks, makes the close of the Old Testament, or 49 years, makes the close of the Old Testament uh, the, the book of Malachi. From that point, 49 years, the Old Testament canon closes. There would be 400 years of Silence. Malachi was god 's last final voice, a cry to Israel for her sin, and the silence would be broken then by John the Baptist, calling Israel to what repentance. Malachi closes with a call to repentance. John the Baptist opens with a call to repentance. Nothing has changed in four hundred years. You, got, you find that in Malachi three one where he says, "Behold." I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Me is in capital, meaning the Messiah. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. So Malachi has eschatological material, meaning last day things prophetically, the first and the second coming, as we'll see. Now, the second division of Daniel's 70 weeks is 62 weeks. Combined with the seven weeks marks the first coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the Messiah. To the very day as we saw that he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And we studied that in Zechariah 9.9 9, and Matthew 21 quotes that. The weeks combined. Equal 483 years base, remember, on a 360-day Babylonian calendar. And by the way, which is the biblical calendar of Genesis. Genesis 8.14, count the days of the flood. And it tells you right there, 360 days of the year. Not 65, the Gregorian calendar. All right? Now, the vision of the world empire, remember, given to Nebuchadnezzar, was going to have an interruption then after the legs of iron. You have the head of gold, arms and chest of silver, Medo-Persia. You have the belly of brass, Greece, legs of iron, Rome. And then you have the 10 toes of iron and clay, the Antichrist. But between the legs of iron and the 10 toes is an interruption. It's called the church age. We've been in it for almost 2000 years. All right. So the third division of one week is left. It marks the seven-year tribulation, as we have seen clearly in our study of the major and minor prophets. That's going to come upon the whole world, those ten toes of iron and clay. The empire of the Antichrist. So the church will be removed from the earth prior to the seven-year tribulation, known as the fullness of the Gentile that Paul writes in Romans 11.25. The fullness of the Gentile is the sum total of people to be saved before the Lord raptures or removes the church prior to the day of the Lord or the seven-year tribulation. The end of the seven-year tribulation marks the time of the Gentiles. That goes from the head of gold to the feet, the toes of iron and clay. So the time of the Gentiles is the empires revealed to Nebuchadnezzar from head to toe. The fullness of the Gentile is the period of church history where the people are saved, Jew or Gentile, to be the church of Jesus Christ. Two different terms, don't confuse them, okay? So we see here, he's the last voice to Israel to repent, and we see God's program right on schedule. As God gave to Noah a set amount of time before the judgment would come, so God has given us a set amount of time before he removes the church and brings and pours out his wrath upon this world. We don't know how long this is. We don't know the day or the hour, but we're to live in such a way as it can come right now. You remember being at home, you were 10, 12, 13, whatever, and you're there with your brothers and sisters, and your parents said, Hey, listen, we're going to be gone for about three hours. You guys behave yourself. stay in the house. And they got on the freeway, and they forgot—they forgot something. And here you are, playing on throwing pillows and jumping on the couches and the bed from bed to bed. And the door opens up, and here you are, midair. Oh, the thing I fear the most has come upon me. You're to live in such a way as you can come right now. Just that simple, ladies and gentlemen. Each of us, as Christians, are the messengers of God to this dark and lost world. I was born again in 1973. I, I, I realized how dark it was, but man, has it gotten darker more than ever before as we look around. We are to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Christ died for the world to save them. Everybody knows John three sixteen; It's a basic scripture. You and I have the gospel. If that's the only verse you know, you can preach the gospel. Simple. And we're to give that to anybody and everybody that God opens the door to. But also to proclaim all manner of sin can be forgiven if there is genuine repentance from the heart, as Second Corinthians seven ten says. Not remorse, but godly repentance. Remorse is, you know, you did something stupid and it cost you and you've got to pay a price and you cry and that, but next weekend you're at it again. You're sorry for the consequences, not the sin that's against God. Godly repentance sees the sin against God, and then with people and against people, and you ask forgiveness and you repent, and God gives you a new heart, and you're born again, and you don't live like that anymore. All right, very clear. But also to proclaim to the repentant sinner that they're a son and daughter of God, and they need to understand, as I said earlier, that that sin is forgiven; he's buried in the deepest ocean. Because Satan's there to condemn you, you're there to condemn yourself, other people there to condemn you, but Jesus says, "I don't remember your sin." Now you know why he lets you remember your sin so you can be thankful for his forgiveness. You see? If he would wipe away from your mind, you wouldn't appreciate grace. You will never forget, but you don't have to live in condemnation. What can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wow. Second Corinthians 5, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. If you're living the same way that you used to, maybe you're not born again. Or you're awfully backslidden. You tell me which one it is. Each of us as believers take responsibility for our sins before Christ now. And we live for Christ. In other words, we do not blame our sin on our parents. We do not blame our sin on society. We do not blame our sin on our economic level. We do not blame our sin upon our nationality or race. We agree with God that we're sinners, that our heart is evil, and we choose darkness rather than light most of the time. And if I don't repent, that I will go to hell. I agree with God's definition of me. So we don't cop out. We take responsibility honorably. Ephesians 4:22 through 24 Paul tells the Ephesians that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness so as a believer you used to have an old sin nature and now you have a new sin, a divine nature okay and this new divine nature can override the life of sin so that you don't have to be living as a slave So you might think of the old life as a car without brakes and God gives you some brakes. Okay? So you've got no excuse for not applying the brakes. Simple. You've got a good four-speed downshift. Okay? There's a lot of ways you can stop. Stick your foot out if you have to. Whatever you have to do. Each of us as believers know that the Lord Jesus is coming for his church before the most horrible time Man has ever known or will know by the words of Jesus. For so seven years, we must pray for God to open the heart of those who will who we will share the gospel with um, to repent of their sins. I don't know how it all works out. I'm supposed to pray, and as I pray, God is working in the heart of people as they hear the gospel. So I'm to be praying that God would open the doors and prepare the heart of those individuals as I share the gospel. We must be able to not be intimidated by. The aggressive uh, anti-Christian attitude that is in control of our world today, especially our nation, is outwardly very hostile to the Christian community. You can believe in a rock. You can believe that uh, if you suck your toe, you'll grow six inches and they'll think you're brilliant. Um, But if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for the world, rose from the dead, and he's going to give you eternal life, and he's coming back for his church, and you're going to be in heaven with him, they think you've lost it. They not only think you're stupid, they're they're hostile towards you. Now, we've got a little break right now, but, you know, (laughs) I don't think it's going to last long. We must not be offended when they reject the gospel of Jesus, thinking that they're rejecting me. That's what makes us different from religions, especially Islam. When I preach the gospel to you and you reject it, you call me names, you even try to do physical harm to me, I don't try to kill you. I am going to defend myself. You may hit me one time, and I can hit you two times. But um, But I'm not going to try to kill you for it. I'm going to pray for you. You're rejecting Jesus, not me. That's what makes us different, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Paul says to Timothy, Second Timothy four two, preach the word, be ready in season and, and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And so, knowing the word of God, we're able to preach the word of God, the gospel to other people. So the man Malachi was God's true messenger in his day. He didn't shirk back from it. He wasn't preaching to good people. He was preaching to people who were compromising the people of God. Secondly, the ministry of Malachi. The ministry of Malachi was that of a prophet to Israel. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word burden appears in the opening verse, meaning an oracle or prophecy uh, to the nation of Israel, as we've seen before. The phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord here, that whole phrase is found only three times in the Old Testament. We saw the first two in Zechariah 9, one and 12.1. And here in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 1 is the third. The only three times it appears in that form, the whole phrase. Now the word burden, as we saw before, is a proclamation of judgment, the idea of carrying something and lifting it to be proclaimed. And it's the judgment of God. This is the burden, something that's heavy on the Lord, because sin grieves God and sin separates us from God and he wants to deal with that with his people so he can get them right and have fellowship with them you as a parent when you're not right with your kid you want to get it right you're not comfortable like that you need to deal with it acknowledge the confession of the, of the fault or the failure and look for forgiveness and acceptance and the true repentance and then everything's back to normal because that's what you want to do when you're a father or a mother now The prophets of the Old Testament at times, but not always, were called by God without having any priestly line. And this was due to the fact that often when God called people that weren't of the priestly lines, because the priestly line had become corrupted, the kings or the leaders. And so he calls them out, even as Amos was told to go prophesy in the south, because he's up there in the northern kingdom, and Amos 7 14 and 15, he said, listen, I was a fruit picker. I was a sheep breeder. Don't talk to me. God called me. The prophet spoke under inspiration, not human impulse. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration. theopanusto, meaning expired from God. Problem for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. You want to be a godly man and woman? Get into the Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19-21 uh, says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. The uh, old King James and the new King James says of no private interpretation. I like the Jimmy translation but that's a bad translation. It is of no personal origin or impulse. And if you read the rest of it, it explains it. Men were carried along by the Spirit of God. In other words, they didn't get up one morning and say, you know, I think I'll write a book. I think I'll prophesy. I'll make a prophecy. No. When the Spirit of God came upon them, they prophesied. They declared God's message. A call to repentance, then secondary, future things. The primary function of a prophet was speaking forth the word of God, called to repentance. The secondary function of a prophet was revealing future things. Usually we think it around. The reverse. It isn't. And so, once the Spirit of God was not on them, they were normal people like you and I. Alright? In fact, um, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 10-12 that, the prophets of old looked at the scriptures and tried to figure them out to search what manner of people and time this was to. And they, sometimes they, f- they knew it was for those people, and sometimes they said, I don't know. Because it was God's illuminating and anointing work. Now, the ministry of Malachi was to proclaim repentance. Some people don't like to hear repentance today. The emergent church doesn't preach repentance. It doesn't deal with sin. It just deals with just dialogue and, you know, we're just going to talk about good things because we can't be sure of any objective truth of the Bible. You can't do that. We can't be certain. Shut up. Are you kidding me? If there's one thing you can know what God thinks and believes and says, it's the Bible. It's objective truth. It's propositional. It's propositional. The Bible says, well, it'd be nice if you, and I think it'd be pleasing to me if, and... no, 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 not at all. Repentance in view of their past, or of their present sin is found in chapter 1 and 2. Repentance in view of the Lord's coming in chapter 3 and 4. That's a 2 repentance. the present sin and the Lord's coming. 400 years silence, Matthew opens up, has that changed? Not at all. The people had become disillusioned and disheartened because the kingdom had not yet come and difficult times had touched them and they became bitter and doubtful about God's promises. So what did they do? They give in to all kinds of manner of sin. Remember, it has been about 139 years since they came back from the captivity of Cyrus. 536. If this is 397... It's 139. You want to take 20 away? 119 years. You see, and when we get our mindset on certain things and we start believing what God should be doing for us and He doesn't come through, then we get bitter. We get resentful. Then we become rebellious. Then we become self centered. Then we start looking more towards sin. Who's He talking to? Non believers or believers? Believers. Wow. In fact, God quotes their very words. We're going to look into more of these. But listen listen to 3.14. This is their words. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? what good is it to serve the Lord? You know, you haven't come through with your promises, God. You said this. Today, people say, you know, I came to the Lord. You know, I lost my job. They repossessed my house. My wife got cancer. What's God doing? Whoa. Back off, Jack. Are you kidding me? Hmm. That person's telling me that God owes them something. Malachi is the third minor prophet after the return from captivity of Babylon. We've just finished Haggai, 520 B.C., Zechariah alongside him, 520 B.C., Malachi, 420 to 397, right at the end. These three prophets are very, very important before the 400-year silence. Now, the ministry of Malachi was twofold. Malachi was first to confront, listen carefully, the defiled priest. Chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 2, verse 9. To those that much is given, much more required. The people of leadership, responsibility. In chapter 1, verse 6, they despise God's name. In 1, 7 through 8, they defile God's altar. One thirteen and 14, they disdain God's service. In fact, they're in 13, their service became a burden rather than a privilege. Ah, it's a how, how do you feel coming to church? Was it, was it an imposition for you this morning? Did you have a choice to go somewhere and you almost went the other way? Is God lucky that you're here? Wow. Their offerings were stolen and sick. Not their own, not even the best. In verse thirteen and fourteen of chapter one, so they've got a great calf there man it's it's it's, it's a red ribbon and and it's getting sick. And, hey, load it up let's take it to the offer it to the Lord before it dies. Well God doesn't honor that. Do you give God the leftovers? Are you trying to help God out? Wow God says to them in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that he wished there was someone wise enough to just shut the doors of the temple and stop this nonsense of ritual because I'm not even going to hear you and I'm certainly not going to answer you. Whoa. He says that would be wisdom to you. When you get to chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 they defend, they deafen their ears to God's warning. Now if you're a parent you'll know exactly what God's talking about here. <laughs> In verse 1, God addressed the priest directly. In verse 2, God identifies their problem. Refusal to hear with an open heart to glorify his name. So what does he do? He curses them. Goes back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, Leviticus 26. The blessings, the cursings, the covenant. In verse 3, God would reject them by defiling them with the animal excrement of their sacrifice that would be removed from the camp usually. He says, you guys are vulgar to me. You guys are defiled to me. You guys are insulting to me. You know what I'll do? When you guys cut out the animal and you take all the entrails to throw it out, I'm going to take that stuff out of the gut. I'm going to rub it all over your face. Wow. Jesus is meek and mild. And you think I'm bad. Verse 4 through 9, they departed from the covenant of Levi. In verse 4, his divine command was from God. He didn't call himself. God made him a priest. His duty was to fear God in verse 5. He doesn't fear God at this point. His desire in the past was to walk with God, verse 6. His divine call was to teach God's word, verse 7. His departure was costly. Verse eight and nine. Yahweh speaking to the priests in the first person, from chapter one, verse two to chapter two, verse nine. One on one, straightforward. like when you get in your child's face, say, "Sit down and listen to me very carefully, and you're dealing very direct with them. When you get to chapter two, verse 10, all the way to four: six, Malachi was then to confront the disobedient people. Leaders first, people second. In verse 10, they were committing treachery with one another. 11 and 12, they were committing treachery to God's holy institution of marriage. Unequally yoked. Divorcing, we're going to see. All kinds of stuff. We find that also in Ezra 9 and 10 in Nehemiah chapter 13. 13 through 16, They were committing treachery with the wife of their youth. In 13, the Lord declared their insincerity and deceptive tears and remorse. A big show. Remorse, you cry, but there's no change of heart. You're a rat. Verse 14, the Lord was a witness to their treachery, to the compromise and wife by covenant. They were divorcing their wife and going after sweet wiggly things from the foreign countries. In verse 15, the Lord made them one by His Spirit because He saw what a godly offspring He wants godly children for the next generation. Goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 20. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, that they should be one flesh. They were both naked and not ashamed. Wow. In verse 16, the Lord hates divorce and will hold people responsible for their treachery. Are you thinking of these things? Are relevant today? In the church? (laughs) Are you kidding me? It's hard to tell the Christian from the world today. In 217, they were committing treachery to God's holiness by declaring that all who did evil were good. By declaring that God delighted in all who did evil. By affirming these saying, listen to other words, where is the God of justice? In other words, if He does not delight in them, why has He not intervened? Ooh, arrogant. So, if you, if you were out partying last night, getting drunk or loaded, or sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, and you're sitting here, you say, well, God hasn't got me. Be patient. <laughs> He'll get to you. Be patient. He's not ignorant. He's patient. If you're sitting here, you're saying you're a Christian. If you're sitting under the word of God, you're saying, I want to know God's will. Wow. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. Let's move on. Um, the prophet speaking to the people in the third person here. From chapter 2, 10 through 17. But the first person when he gets to chapter 3, 1 to 4, 6. They were committing treachery to God's tithe. In chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. God charges them with robbing him in 8 and 9. Wow. God challenged them to prove his faithfulness in verse 10. See if he wouldn't open the windows of heaven. And you know the attitude of our giving. We don't make much to do about money here. Um... I only touch it when we come across Scripture. When we went through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, right there he gives you the whole aspect of the principles, and and it's got to be hilarious and of our heart. If if you cannot give to God what belongs to God from your heart, please do not pollute our offering. There is no pressure. There is no demand. There is nothing ever here. We are committed to teach the Word of God, and God will take care of us one way or the other. And he's proven that to be true through 37 or some years. He's faithful in all things. In verse 10, God challenged them to prove his faithfulness. And then in 13 through 15, they were committing treachery against God. They were saying it didn't pay to serve God in verse 14. Wow. They were saying there was no benefit or profit in obeying God in the rest of 14. So people today, well, what's the saying? You know, this happened, I came to the Lord, and this happened, I lost it. As if, are you serious? Wow. And they believe a new philosophy for their day, verse 15. The proud were blessed, the wicked exalted, and they tempted God by not punishing them. New philosophy, like today. Good is evil, evil good. Isaiah's day, 520. Today, it's the evil who are protected. We've even changed our whole vocabulary. You're not an illegal alien. You're an undocumented worker. What? That's why there's borders. That's why you have passports. That's why you have immigration laws. Simple Amos was called to confront the northern kingdom, as you know, in view of their sins, the king, the priest, and the people. And they just snubbed God, much like the people here we're talking about. One put it this way. Trifle not with God, who can cast you into hell forever. Trifle not with Christ, whose hands and feet were nailed to the accursed tree for sinners such as you. Trifle not with his precious blood, for that is your only hope of redemption. Trifle not with the Holy Spirit, for if he should leave you to perish, your case would be hopeless. Trifle not with the gospel. What would the lost in hell not give to hear another proclamation of mercy? The devil does not trifle. He is very earnestly seeking your destruction. God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are not trifling with you. And we are not trifling with you. The gospel. What an incredible, incredible gift of God to us. God saves and calls individuals in every generation to ministry, ladies and gentlemen. Some he calls to be pastors, evangelists, and a pastor, teacher, so on and so forth, and we'll just put a category, though it's not biblically, those full-time, but it doesn't mean that you have to be full-time. That's just a, a, a minor technicality that sometimes people put. And then other times, people are just people that live, that come to the church, and they're involved in ministry, okay? But we're all involved in full-time ministry. It all depends on the calling of God upon your life, the, the, the gifting of the gifts, and, God calls you, He anoints you, and He sends you. Then He makes it effective. Okay. God is not so interested in um in talent, but He's interested in availability. Too often we pride ourselves and we're dependent upon ourselves, and um, we think that. We're just the most eloquent person to share the gospel. And the, people, the reason people get saved is because I have the anointing and I can speak it and I can make it clear. And God says, you know, I used a jackass one time. And I've used many a jackass since. I mean, we get so impressed with each other. It's amazing to me. There is no inferiority between the two. It is just based on God's sovereign call. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this to the Corinthians. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you have not received? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? All that I have is God. My gift of pastor's teacher is for you, not for me. I get some benefit but for you. To teach you year after year. Sunday after Sunday, Thursday after Thursday if I would have been told, if someone would have told me before I was born again, when I was in Ball Park High School or Long Beach City College or Cal State LA, that I was going to be teaching, I was going to be ma- having to make a new sermon three times a week and more for the rest of my life, i say, you're crazy. I'm amazed every time God puts a sermon together. Then I'm amazed every Sunday when I stick my head out and you're still here. 37 years for some of you. It's a long time. Who's sufficient for that? God help us. Just the grace of God. God's message never changes for every generation. The heart of the message is always repentance from sin. Always. The heart of the shepherd is always to feed the flock of God. The heart of God is to use the church as light and salt to the world. Ezekiel puts it this way in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, He says, So, say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? His people. Wow. God has no respect of persons regarding the message. The people of God are always to be... Um, warn about the compromising of, of living in sin. Always. Because we still have sin nature, right? We live in a fallen world. The pastors of God are to be also warned of compromising and living. We see it. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Well, to you, scribes. Woe well to you Pharisees. The pastoral epistles warn about it. There's a great danger in attending church regularly and living in sin and believe that God approves of my evil. It's a great mistake. First Timothy six, nineteen through twenty one puts it this way do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without Prejudice or partiality, doing nothing with partiality. So in other words, I am to call you out of your sin as well as a leader in the church. No difference. In fact, the leader has the greater responsibility and accountability, you see. So the ministry of Malachi was very fitting for his day. Thirdly comes the message of Malachi The message of Malachi was about God's undying love for Israel despite her failures. And it's a picture of his love for us. It's a message of God's undying love for his people. This is revealed in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. In verse 2 through 5 there, the evidence was in God's sovereignty to choose and bless Jacob over Esau. God hated the nation of Edom. For their evil. And he judged them. Verse 3 and 4. Israel would acknowledge. God's sovereign rule in verse 5. But when he says that he hates. Esau. And loves Jacob. He's referring. Back to Genesis 25. Where Rebekah had. Remember she was having trouble with her pregnancy. And she sought the Lord. And the Lord says there's two nations in your womb. Now. Malachi is making a commentary here at the end, knowing the history from here to here. Now, God doesn't need the history. He knew it from the beginning. But Malachi is being used for God to conclude, make a statement about the character of the nation, not the individual election. So when Paul uses... This quote of Malachi in Romans 9, 10 through 13, he's not talking about individual predestination for salvation. He's talking about national election of Israel. And Calvinists know this. It's very dishonest of them. Predestination of election is not the context of Romans. It's national election of Israel. Distinct from Edom, Esau, very important, context, 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 the evidence was in God's message of repentance to Israel, it was always ever-present, that's his love, throughout the Old Testament in Malachi 3, 7, he says, yet through the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way should we return? Ooh, now you're a father. You tell your son, why'd you do that? I don't think it's none of your business. Oh, really? Come here, let me give you a hug. <laughs> Smart Alec. <laughs> Malachi 4, 6. Even into the New Testament, Listen. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. He's talking about Elijah. To the very end, God loves Israel, his people. His love is undying. But it cannot compromise with sin. Notice the message of Malachi was about man's indifference to God resulting from bitterness and a callous heart and it's a warning to each of us let me just give you some of the things we'll just highlight we'll get to more in depth but in chapter one verse two this is what they say listen to them. in what way have we have you loved us now you as a parent you say you know i love you oh yeah you love me huh? but i can't you can't buy me a car okay what one six in what way have we despised your name one seven. In what way have we defiled you? 2:17? In what way have we wearied you? Three- seven? In what way shall we return? Ooh. Three- eight. In what way have we robbed you, 3:13? What have we spoken against you? Irreverent, Sarcastic, disrespectful. Who are they talking to? God. He's quoting their words. The message of Malachi was about God's sure promise of coming judgment to man. The judgment is twofold, fulfilled by the first and the second coming of Jesus. The short term fulfillment would be by John the Baptist as Jesus clearly stated that to his disciples in Matthew 11 and 17 and Luke 1. That John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah short term. The long term fulfillment would be Elijah would come himself Revelation 11:3 through 10 as one of the two witnesses that the antichrist will kill. Wow. The term Lord of Hosts appears in Malachi 24 times. The emphasis is the authority of God's word to Israel. It demonstrates God's power as a captain and commander of the armies of heaven to execute the judgment. The wicked will perish, chapter 3, 5 through 6, says in 4, one. The day of the Lord. We've seen it through all the major and minor prophets. Amos 4, 5 through 18, one of them. It is happens at the white throne judgment. After the thousand year reign, everybody who's ever rejected God's word and the gospel are brought up from hell and they're judged. And they're not judged, but they're sentenced for their sins. The minute a person dies without Jesus Christ, they are guilty and they go to what we commonly call hell, Hades or Sheol. At the end of the thousand years, every person is brought up to be sentenced. Someone robs a store, they go to court next week, they get convicted. Guilty. Guilty. They get thrown in the pokey. A month later, they're brought up for sentencing. They don't wait; really brought up for a second trial. They're already guilty. There's no second opportunity. White throne judgment. The remnant will be rewarded. Malachi three sixteen through seventeen and four two. The judgment of the believer. For rewards happens at the rapture. When we are removed from this earth, we go before the bema seed of Christ. First Corinthians 3, 12-15, I believe Romans 14, 10, and Second Corinthians 5, 10. Okay? We go through the fire because we're going to be judged by our motives. First Corinthians 4, 5. God is not interested or impressed with what I do or how much I do. He's interested in why I do it and how I do it. I've given you the example always. You tell your son, take the trash out. He goes, I don't want to take the trash Take the trash out. And he takes it out. But he is being an egghead. Next week, you say, hey, take the trash out. Sure, dad. Takes it out. Goes, okay, it's done. Which one you like better? But the trash was taken out both times. God will reward me for the motive of why I do and how I do it. Do I do a love for God and love for people? I get some reward. If not, it's crispy critters. Everything's gone. Though you're saved by fire, but the reward's gone. No big deal. You know, judgment begins in the house of God, 1 Peter four seventeen says. Because to those who much is given, much more is required, right? You do that as a parent. As you know, David lived alive for about a year when God finally sent Nathan the prophet to confront him about his sin. And he repented from his sin. But for a year, he lived that way, giving the impression that he was such a great king, such compassionate, you know, this faithful pagan proselyte gave his life for the kingdom. And he's got this pregnant wife and I'm going to take her in and take care of her. You are a super dog, David. You're the one that got her pregnant and killed her husband. Who was he? The sweet psalmist of Israel. Don't think that you're beyond anything, ladies and gentlemen. Never say never. You say, by the grace of God, I'll be smart enough to hang on to him. Not go there. Real simple. One put it this way. To be on the high road to hell. And yet to be trifling with eternal things. To be on the brink of perdition. And yet to be jesting at religion. To be nearing the everlasting burnings. And yet to be treading the blood of Christ beneath your feet. Oh That is a mad work. (laughs) God's message to us is that regardless of our failures, God still loves us. I am so glad God is not like me. No one will ever sin against me as much as I have sinned against God. And he always has forgiven me. You and I are debtors, ladies and gentlemen, to the bone. We're to go before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need in Hebrews 4.16. Knowing we have a faithful high priest, he loves us. We're to know that we have an advocate for the defense before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous in 1 John 2.1. Except he's a different lawyer. He doesn't take innocent pleas or plea bargaining. The only way Jesus can get you off is if you plead guilty. Because there's no innocent cases. If you acknowledge your sin, he's able to cleanse you and forgive you of your sin. But he doesn't play games with us. God does not look upon our indifference to him. Due to things that have made us resentful and bitter. In other words, we may blame God for our disappointments. But that doesn't make it right. We may blame God for the treacherous act of some people, be it a wife or a husband or friend. But what does that have to do with God. We may blame God for tragedies or illnesses that take us um, and bring difficulties upon us. But yet, God's on the throne, and my life does not belong to me, but to Him. And I do live in a fallen world, right? So we end up not having passion for God, but rather indifference and even ill feelings towards Him. Now if you have that type of relationship with your wife or husband, it's not a very nice relationship. You don't look forward to coming home until you get that right. It's like playing football without a helmet. So it's the same with God. He wants to do the good for me, the best for me. But it's according to His will, according to His word. God is good. He can make no mistakes. He died for me. If he died for me, how much more will he give me all things? The heart knows its own bitterness and the stranger does not share its joy. Proverbs 14.10 Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Hebrews twelve fourteen through 16 People say, oh, well, look, he cried, and why didn't God forgive him? Because he sought it through remorse, through tears, not godly repentance. A lot of people cry before God, but they're not repentant. They don't see their sin against God. What they're crying about is the consequence. The message of Malachi is very relevant for our days. Don't you think? Wow.
1: This is the book of Malachi
0: that reveals the evil of his day. Nothing has changed, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, may have gotten a little more evil. (laughs) The man Malachi was God's true messenger in his day. Are you? The ministry of Malachi was very fitting for his day, is yours. The message of Malachi is very relevant for our day. You can't miss it. God got to give us wisdom as we go through this book. Just four little chapters. But man, this thing is just a gem. It's a diamond we got to cut up <laughs> to make it shine. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray that you deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word again. I thank you for every person that's here, Lord. I thank you for the radio listeners, Lord. I pray for just all who are listening right now that you deal with their hearts. If you're out there in the balcony, the floor, or maybe you're out there somewhere in the world, wherever it may be, Jesus loves you, He died for you, He paid the price for your sin, and the Father raised Him from the dead to guarantee that you can call upon His name, be forgiven, be made a new creation, and to Him, but to you, will be given eternal life by grace through faith. So if you see yourself as a sinner before God, you can repent right now. And he says he will make you a child of God and forgive you of all your sins. His word, not mine. In other words, you need to be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. Words of Jesus. If this is your desire, this is your prayer to him right where you sit right now. And he's going to forgive you, give you a brand new heart, a new life. His Holy Spirit to live the life that he desires you to live. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.